morning. So on Easter Sunday, uh, 2017, do you, like Thomas, believe? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe in His resurrection? And if you do believe, and this is the important thing really this morning, how does the truth of who He is, of His resurrection, impact your life? The historical accounts of the resurrection are found in in four biographies of Jesus' life. The the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this morning we're going to look at John's account. Because in in chapter 20 of of the, the Gospel, the book of John, verses 30 and 31... This is just following John's account of the resurrection. He, he, he gives us the account of the resurrection. He gives us Jesus encountering, encountering different people and his finally encountering Thomas, doubting Thomas. And then John says this. John tells us the purpose for all that he's written. Now, Jesus did many other things, other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. Specifically, this sign of the resurrection is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John's purpose is to present his account in such a way that we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Why? Get this. Because for those who truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then our only logical, our only consistent response is to obey Him, is to follow Him, is to trust Him, is to completely surrender to Him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, as the Lord of our life. And it's in this surrendering our lives to Him that we find life in His name. That we're granted life in His presence throughout all eternity. That's what we're shooting for. Life in His presence throughout all eternity. That's what the Apostle John wants for his readers. That's what he wants for you and for me. He's already believed. John has believed. He's received life in the name of Jesus Christ. And he wants that for all people. And the way he seeks to persuade us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God is by recording the signs that Jesus performed in the presence of His disciples. The signs that John himself witnessed. And the greatest and the final sign, the one that should leave no doubt as to who Jesus truly is, is His resurrection from the dead. John saw Jesus die on the cross. He heard Jesus' final words. John was there. He heard Jesus say, it is finished. And he, like Thomas, I mean, Thomas gets the bad rap, doubting Thomas, but really none of them believed. None of them believed until they saw Like Thomas and all of Jesus' disciples, when Jesus said it's finished, when Jesus died on that cross, he was devastated. But then, three days later, on that first Easter, John witnessed the resurrection. And the resurrection changed everything. So before we look at John's account, and we will in just a second, I want us to first see the importance of the resurrection. I want us to understand just how important the resurrection is. Why do we take this day and celebrate the resurrection every year? Ask yourself this. What is Christianity without the resurrection? If the resurrection is just a a fictional add-on that provides a happy ending to Jesus' life, 
then Christianity has no meaning at all. You see, uh, Christianity, Christianity, is based on the fact that Jesus Christ is the eternal, everlasting Son of God. That He is God the Son, who incarnated Himself, who entered into our world, who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross, offering Himself as, a, as, a, as our substitute. Uh, he died in our place, providing the perfect sacrifice for our sins. So that those who believe, those who believe in Him might be saved. As we've been in, in, uh, in the book of Romans over the last number of weeks, we're being, we are saved from the righteous wrath of God that is poured out upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness in our world. And instead of receiving wrath, Jesus saves us and we receive eternal life in His presence. But if Jesus has been dead for over 2,000 years, then He cannot be the eternal Son of God. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then He has no real relevance to us apart from maybe being an interesting historical figure. However great His teaching may have been, however powerful some of His miracles may have seemed, if His story ends in His death, He's not God. If He didn't rise from the dead, then He's just another man passing through history. And therefore, he certainly has no power to give eternal life. He certainly has no power to forgive or help us to overcome sin in our life. He certainly has no power to give us the Holy Spirit, if there even is a Holy Spirit. If he's dead, he cannot be our Savior. He cannot be our Lord. Paul, the the Apostle Paul, understood these things. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 15-14 very clearly, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The importance of the resurrection cannot be overstated. Without the resurrection, our faith, yours and mine, Christianity is vanity. Meaningless, pointless, purposeless. But with the resurrection, our faith, Christianity, the gospel, means everything. The resurrection provides proofs, excuse me, proves the truth of all Jesus said, all Jesus did, especially what he did on the cross. So the resurrection is essential, it's crucial, it means everything to our faith. Now understand this. Just because I say, just because Paul says uh, uh, that something is means everything doesn't make it true, does it? If we're going to believe, if we're going to trust in something, especially if our eternity, where we're going to spend eternity, hangs in the balance of what we're putting our trust in, then we should have a basis for our trust. We should have a basis for our belief. Certainly, uh, there's faith involved. But we need to understand, it cannot just be blind faith. It must be faith based on evidence. So if we're going to believe in the resurrection, then we should have evidence that it's true. That's the second point, the evidence for the resurrection. We're going to get to John in just a second. 
Now, there have been many books. If, if, if you're familiar with this topic, there are books and articles written about the historical and, and really the logical evidence for the resurrection. Really, the, the hinge of Christianity, it hinges on, did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? So there are just all of the, these books. and I've, I've included three in your notes. If you have notes on the back, I've included three books. If you're interested in this, the case for the resurrection of Jesus, the case for Easter, and evidence for the resurrection. And if you don't want to get a book, just go to your computer this afternoon, sit down with, with Google, and, and type in evidence for the resurrection. You're going to just find tons of stuff. Most of it good, some of it bad. So be careful. Be careful out there in that internet place. But before Google... Before any articles or books on the resurrection were written, the Apostle John, in chapter 20 of his Gospel, gives us, really, I think, two major pieces of evidence. So let's turn to John's eyewitness testimony. And the first piece of evidence he presents is the empty tomb. The empty tomb. In verse 1 of John chapter 20, he begins his testimony to the resurrection. He says, he writes, Now on the first day of the week, that first Easter Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. In their Gospels, uh, Mark and Luke tell us that other women were, were with Mary. She's not alone. They come early to anoint the body of Jesus. Jesus was buried uh, right before the Sabbath, and so he hadn't been properly taken care of. So, so uh, they come to, to finish the job. Properly anoint his body. John says that Mary saw, underlined the word saw, that the stone had been taken away. That Greek word saw is just the ordinary word for seeing something. She just saw it with her eyes. I point that out because John will use two other words, two other Greek words that in our English are translated saw but have deeper meanings. And we'll point those out when we get to it. So I want you to see, he's using this, this just regular, I saw it, like I see Tony sitting right there in the third row. Same, same, same word. But, but we're going to get to uh, some different words here. Mary saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And this is a big deal for her. This is huge. Because she knows, she knows that Pilate the governor of Judea, the one who ordered Jesus' crucifixion at the request of the Jewish religious leaders had ordered that the tomb be sealed and secured with uh, 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 guards. There were soldiers there to seal and secure it. But Mary sees that the stone has been taken away. And in verse 2 we read, So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and, and we don't, do not know where they have laid him. It's, there's franticness in her. The other disciple who Jesus loved is, is John himself. So John, it's Peter and John we're going to be seeing here in a minute. Now it's clear that Mary and the other women, uh, as they went to the tomb, they did not expect it to be open. They certainly didn't expect the tomb to be empty. Resurrection wasn't in their minds at all. Even though Jesus had foretold His resurrection, it had sort of went over everyone's head. They didn't get it. So Mary's first thought is not, oh my gosh, Jesus is risen from the dead. She's distressed because she thinks they, uh, probably Jesus' enemies, 
have taken the Lord out of the tomb. So she runs to the disciples to give them what she thinks is the bad news. And in verse 3 we read, So Peter went out with the other disciple, this is John, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter. John's impressed with his athletic prowess here. And and reached the tomb first. So John arrives. John's probably younger, better shape. Kind of like me. Oh, just not not really. Verse 5. And stooping, this is John, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Now that word saw here is the same one used when Mary saw that the empty tomb is open, just seeing with your physical eyes. At first John saw with his eyes the linen, but he didn't go in. Now Peter is very different. Here he comes huffing and puffing. Verse 6 we read, Then Peter came following him and he went into the tomb. Where John looked and he didn't go in, Peter went in before he looked. John is cautious, he's checking things out. Uh, Peter, in his typical fashion, if you've read anything about Peter, wanting to be first, he rushes in without much thought. Verse 6 continues, He, Peter, saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Now here John uses the, the, a different word for Peter seeing. The word saw here means not just seeing with your eyes, but looking at something uh, carefully and critically. It's really the, it's the Greek word thereo, which we get our word theory from. To go into something thoroughly and to work it out, to think about it. Peter goes in and he doesn't just see with his eyes, but he begins to look carefully and, and critically at the evidence before him. This is... This is evidence. This is like uh, CSI, crime scene. Inv- What's going on here? So what did he find? He found an empty tomb. No body. But the grave clothes were still there in a, a neat, orderly condition. It says the face cloths had been, had been folded up and laid aside. And this may seem like a, a minor detail, but, it, but it's very important. You see, one of the main arguments... One of the main things, antagonists, uh, uh, people who don't believe in Christianity, don't believe in the resurrection, say, because really, historically speaking, there was a Jesus, he was crucified and his body's gone. So they have to say something. So they say, well, someone took the body. Someone took the body, but if the grave clothes are still neatly in place, then the idea of anyone, whether it was grave robbers, Jewish leaders, the disciples, the Romans, the idea of anyone taking the body is, is really highly unlikely. Why is that? You see, if someone had taken the body, they would, would, wouldn't have taken time to tidy up afterwards, to fold up the little grave clothes. More, more than likely, they would have scattered the grave clothes all over the tomb. And even more likely, and I think this is, this is key, more likely they wouldn't have removed the linens from the body at all. I mean, could you imagine, he's, he's bloodied and battered, uh, his body has been devastated, and they've wrapped it up, why would you unwrap it and take the bloody, battered body? Why wouldn't you just take the linen cloths with you? So when Peter and John find the tomb empty, they consider the evidence. The text is uh, unclear, it doesn't say what Peter immediate conclusions Peter came to, but in verse 8, it makes it clear what John concluded. It says, 
Then the other disciple, John speaking of himself, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. Here's the third Greek word for saw. This word doesn't uh, just mean seeing with your eyes, or even looking at, at it carefully and critically as with a theory. It means seeing and understanding. We use this in English. We use this in, our, in the English language as well. For example, if you're reading a, a murder mystery, and all of a sudden, as you're reading, you realize who the killer is, you might say, oh, now I see. The butler did it, or whoever. That's the saw that John uses for himself in verse 8. Not just that I saw that the body was gone, but I saw and I understood and believed that Jesus had risen. That the only uh, explanation that fits the facts is that Jesus has risen from the dead. Then John adds in verse 9 and 10, sort of to clarify, for as of yet, they did not understand, they the disciples, the Scripture, that He must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. John admits that, uh, that, that this whole, uh, that the Scripture, that everything that had been written about Jesus and the resurrection that Jesus had said about the resurrection had went over their heads. They didn't understand it. If they had, then they would have known that Jesus would rise from the dead. They would have been looking for it. They wouldn't have been surprised when the tomb was empty. But in the tomb, John says, I saw, I understood, and I believed. So what about you? If you're not a a believer in Jesus Christ, if you haven't trusted in Him as your Lord and Savior, if you don't believe in His resurrection, if you believe it's fiction, then may I ask you a question? And unfortunately, you can't answer here today, but I'm going to answer for you. Okay, no. How do you explain John's testimony, his evidence of the empty tomb? Now, you might say, you might be thinking, well, that's simple. There was actually no empty tomb. This is just a, a story made up by Jesus' followers, specifically Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because they all are pretty consistent about the resurrection in all four stories written by different men not a, a, over a, a period of time. Uh, they, along with, with Peter and Paul, uh, conspired to devise this myth of the resurrection of Jesus. So you don't believe the evidence that's presented by John or, or anyone else because you don't trust the witnesses. Now there are several reasons why this doesn't make sense. And if you want to study it further, I'd again point you to those, those three books uh, that I mentioned or others. But for me, there's one piece of evidence that stands above them all. This is it. History records, not, not the Bible... Not a religious book, but history records that these men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and others, who recorded the events of Jesus' life, including the resurrection, were persecuted and killed for their faith. They were persecuted and killed for preaching the resurrection. So that means they all went to their graves, never recanting this lie that they had devised, never telling anyone that they had made up the resurrection that they had stolen the body, that that something else had happened to Jesus. Now certainly, uh, people will die for a lie. It happens all too often in our world. The 9-11 hijackers, suicide bombers, cult members. These and many others have died for what have clearly been seen as lies. But the thing is, 
Those that died didn't believe they were dying for a lie. They died believing they were dying for the truth. The question is, what person would die for a lie that they knew was a lie? What's the point? What do they possibly have to gain? Uh, Pascal, famous uh, mathematician, said, said about the witnesses to the resurrection, I believe the witnesses that get their throats cut. How do you explain that the followers of this carpenter from Nazareth, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, were transformed, I mean literally, read the, read the book of Acts, transformed into, uh, read church history, any church history. The fact that we're standing here today, that the church uh, of Jesus Christ exists, these people were transformed into men and women who were willing to preach the truth of the resurrection, even when it meant their death. The resurrection, uh, go, turn to the book of Acts, over and over, Peter's sermon, the central focus of his sermons, of Paul's messages, the resurrection is there over and over again. So how do you account for these things? I believe they only make sense if the tomb actually was empty. And these witnesses actually believed that Jesus rose from the dead. But the empty tomb isn't the only evidence John presents. John also presents evidence of uh, the living Lord. So it's not just that the tomb was empty, the grave clothes were there, we figured it out, Jesus rose from the dead, they go back and they create Christianity. Okay, that's not it. There's more. According to John, according to uh, the other gospel writers, eventually all the disciples, including John himself, including Thomas, would encounter the living Lord. But John turns uh, the spotlight right after this. He turns the spotlight on Mary Magdalene, and so we're going to look at her. The empty tomb didn't cause Mary to believe like it had John. Verse 11 begins, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. She's distraught because she, she, she hasn't grasped the fact of the resurrection. And as she wept, she, she stood, stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Apparently, uh, Mary didn't see anything special about these angels. As far as she was concerned, they looked like uh, just regular men in white. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? You know, God often prepares the, the way for us to encounter the, him, Himself, encounter the Lord, to meet Him through, through messengers. And often the messengers of God whether they're human or whether they're angelic, take, take us right to the point of our need. Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not wo- know where they have laid him. Mary's still coming to terms uh, with the fact that the tomb is empty, the body's gone. And that causes her grief for Jesus' death to, to grow, to become even greater. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Not sure why she didn't know. Maybe he's looking a little different. But often when we're faced with emotional distress, grief, difficulty, when we can't make sense of, of what's happening in our lives, The Lord uh, Jesus is much closer to us than than we might imagine. But we don't always see Him. We don't always recognize Him. And even if we see Him, we're not sure what to do. Mary was so overwhelmed with grief, she didn't realize that Jesus was standing right there. 
Verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Jesus comes to Mary in her pain, but he doesn't come in an overpowering way. He doesn't say, Here I am, Mary. I'm risen from the dead. Also, he doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't rebuke her or any of the disciples for their not getting it, for their unbelief. He doesn't say, why are you so upset? I told you this would happen. Why didn't you believe me? Instead, Jesus meets her where she is. He recognizes the great love she has for him. He knows that her sorrow and grief come from her love. And then he gently, with with a few questions, seeks to open her eyes and minds to the reality of her situation. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Verse 15 continues. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where where you've laid him and I will take him away. Again, Mary's love for Jesus shines. She just wants to find Jesus' body. She isn't making a lot of sense though. Why would she think the gardener took his body away? And even if, and even if he did uh, take him away, Mary is so overwhelmed with grief, she wants to make sure Jesus' body is taken care of. She does, how would she do it? I'll take him away. I'll, I'll tote him away myself, she says. And again, Jesus sees her heart and he responds in love. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, one word, Mary. Jesus speaks her name. The text doesn't reveal the tone. Uh, I imagine that, that there, the, the tone was very gentle and loving and it came through Jesus' voice, Mary. That one word, brings both instant recognition and instant response. And in Mary, we see our our third point, the response to the resurrection. Mary's response is not just to the resurrection, but really it's to a resurrected Christ. And her first response is really the theme. We've seen it in John, and now we see it in Mary. It's believing. Verse 16, she turned and she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Rabboni really means more than teacher. The suffix uh, there, N-I, on the end means my teacher, my master. It signifies submission. It signifies reverence. With that one word, Mary says, I believe. It's you. She puts her trust in Jesus. You're my teacher. You're my master. She, she says, I will submit to you. I will honor you. And it's that submission and honor that brings eternal life in His name. The resurrected Lord, Jesus Christ, called Mary's name and her response was to believe. And so what about you? Have you heard Jesus call your name? Maybe not audibly, but in in your heart. Have Have you had that personal encounter with the living Lord? Has Jesus come to you in the midst of your pain, your confusion, your problems, your grief? Maybe He's calling your name this morning, will you respond like Mary? Will you say, Rabboni, my teacher, my master? Others, others would meet the living Lord face to face. Scripture says that Jesus remained on earth for 40 days after his resurrection. After his encounter with Mary, he then goes to the apostles. And Paul says after, after, after that, over 500 people saw him risen from the grave. They saw him with their eyes and they believed. Later in chapter 20, doubting Thomas, after seeing and and touching the Lord, he believed. He says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. 
He gets it right. But Jesus said to Thomas something interesting. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's a word for us today. This room contains many people who've not seen and yet have believed. We've read the testimony in the, in the pages of Scripture. We've seen the evidence. And through the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, we believe. Like Mary and Thomas, like John, we've recognized who Jesus truly is. We've said, my, my teacher, my master, my savior, my Lord and my God. We've had a personal encounter. We've entered into personal relationship with the risen Jesus, the living Lord. Now once Mary recognizes Jesus, she has another response. Probably really going on at the same time. As believing, she begins worshiping. There's a certain amount of worship implied in that word Rabboni. But Matthew says that Mary and the other women with her, they came up and took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. She fell at His feet in worship and held on to Him. And in verse 17 of, of John chapter 20, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to Me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now this is a little weird uh, passage, a little difficult to understand. It wasn't that Jesus didn't want to be worshipped. It wasn't that His body was somehow now untouchable. Later in the chapter, he, he would encourage Thomas to touch his wombs. What Jesus probably means is this. Do not think, Mary, that, that by clinging to me, you can keep me with... She's holding on. She doesn't want to let him go. He's gone one... That you can keep me with you. The lasting fellowship that you want must wait until I've ascended to the Father. Fellowship would be resumed, but, but it would be in a far richer and more blessed way. Jesus continues, but, but go to your brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus says, I'm returning to my Father. But that's good news. For He is now your Father. He is now your God. Jesus knew that because of the crucifixion, because He had died, in our place. And because of the resurrection, a new day had come. He knew that when He ascended, He would send the Holy Spirit to live within every one of His people. We can now have a new kind of relationship with God. A heart-to-heart, spirit-to-spirit relationship. We can worship God in spirit and in truth. God would no longer be distant. There would be no separation because of sin. He can now be your Father. He can now be your God. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus died. That's why Jesus rose again. And John wrote this Gospel that we might believe and receive the God, the God, as our God, as our Father. He wrote, John wrote in, in the beginning, in the sort of the prelude to this gospel, in, in chapter 1, verse 12, he said, But to all who receive him, Jesus, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus came to make us children of God. He is the only begotten of the Father, he's the only begotten Son of God. But we, through him, can be adopted. You can be brought into the family of God by grace. 
As John said in in chapter 1, verse 12, all who receive and believe Him, all who come to Him in faith, will be adopted into His family. And then, the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ will become your God and your Father. You can enter into intimate, real relationship with Him. You can draw near to Him and He will draw near to you. Now we have one more verse to cover. But before we do that, I want to stop and give you an opportunity uh, to see. As John saw, as Mary saw, to understand and to believe. For those who maybe for the first time are hearing Jesus uh, call their name. For the first time are seeing the, the truth of who He is. The truth that He proved through the resurrection. And you're believing I want to give you an opportunity right where you are to respond. To cry out, really, as as Mary did, in your heart to Jesus. To fall on your feet. To worship Him, saying, Rabboni, my teacher, my master, my savior, my Lord. So in this moment, I'd like us all to bow our heads and close our eyes. And if you've never believed, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior. As the one who died in your place for your sins. Who died in your place on the cross. And who rose in the dead from the dead in power. Then I invite you to do that now. To believe. To tell Him that you believe. I invite you to use your own words. To begin a relationship with your Father. With your God. Through Jesus Christ. Prayer is just talking to God. So take this moment to speak to Him silently in your heart. And and after a few moments, I'll, I'll pray for us all. Just a moment of silence.